Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi. Hi, Erica. It's the evening. How weird. Amy wow. You won't sound half asleep this time. <laughs> I'm still half asleep. Perfect. Perfect. I've had like seven shots of espresso today, so I am awake. Welcome to Book Talk. This is your weekly podcast, Book Club. We are finished with The School for Good Mothers by Jasmine Chan. Which, and the reason we said that like that was because we've been saying her name wrong for the last three weeks. episodes. Yeah, weeks in the last three episodes. And, uh, but we did personally apologize, and uh, we're very sorry. So Jasmine Chan. Now you're in the know. You're in the know with all of us that it's ja- it's pronounced Jasmine Chan. Mm-hmm. And we're going to discuss our reaction to this last section of the book, our thoughts on the book overall, and then we'll be joined by Jasmine to talk more about the themes of this book. Yes. So spoilers are ahead in this section and in this summary. In this last section of the book, we watch Frida suffer through the last few units at the school designed to measure her growth as a mother and a human. We see her bond with Emmanuel deepen and also her love for Tucker, even as she grows further from Harriet and loses her phone privileges repeatedly. It seems there is really no way for Frida to succeed here, and that is sadly proven when a judge decides that every that after everything, she should lose her parental rights. We watch her have one last heart-wrenching goodbye with Harriet, and she leaves him in the care of Gus and Susanna. And then we get to watch Frida grapple with her life without her baby, um, struggling especially after she learns that Tucker is, in fact, reunited with his son. The book ends in a last-ditch effort, and with the help of Will, Frida takes Harriet from her room in the middle of the night, driving as far away as she can get for a few last moments with her daughter. (sighs) (laughs) Oh, sigh. That is, I was honestly pretty surprised at this ending. I never once thought that Frida was going to get Harriet back. Um, was still super heartbroken to read the last scene. It's been a while since I cried at a book, and I cried at that scene because it was just so sad. Okay, longtime listeners will know. Katie, did you actually cry? No, I didn't actually <laughs> cry. Why is everyone so judgy? <laughs> I teared up. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> I want the listeners to know the tears were streaming down my face. I was on the subway. I was crying into my mask and then into my mouth because there's nothing you can do. The tears are just, they're flowing. <laughs> I tried to squeak one out, but I really just <laughs> felt it. You're like blinking really hard. Yeah. Uh, but I felt a lot of emotions. Um, and it was just so heartbreaking to read about that. And I also was heartbroken when she had to leave Emmanuel. So I just feel like this last section was just so heart-wrenching and Jasmine did such a good job getting into all those emotions. Um, But I expected to kind of end on that note, honestly, with just feeling sad about the state of Frida and of her world. But I kind of loved this last ditch effort and the way that she ended essentially kidnapping her own child in the middle of the night. I had to read it twice because I was kind of confused about what was going on. The thing I didn't understand is why she's like tucking the note into her jacket or the picture into her jacket. Like what is going on? And then I realized like, Oh, she's anticipating the second time I read it. I was realizing she's anticipating. There's no way she's getting away with this. Like they're going to catch up with her. And so she's just like enjoying this last night with her daughter or however, however many days she can squeak out before they find her. And I didn't realize that, at first, so I actually had to read it twice to like understand that that's what was happening. I think we see Frida in this section almost decide that living her life in prison, even though she feels like that's inevitably where she'll end up, is worth it because she gets this limited time with Harriet, which just is so sad because it's such a small sliver of time compared to the 16 years she'll have to live without her. But she sees it as worth every consequence, which if that's not what the school taught you <laughs> to love your child, you know, without any other considerations and I don't know what the school is teaching us right one of the last things one of the last sections of or one of the last sessions of the school is about physical violence and it seems like they're beating each other up like legitimately beating each other up and she tells Emmanuel like you should be willing this is what moms do you should be willing to die for your child and that's 
pretty much set in her mind now that I will do whatever and just to be with her for a little bit longer. So why do you think she put the pictures in her coat? It's she says that she put them in her coat because she can't talk about what happened at the school and everyone at the school has signed NDAs. But if once they get Harriet back, Susanna and Gust will find the picture of her with Emmanuel and they will ask questions about what is this doll? What was going on? Talk to the press. So I think that's the imagined role for Gust and Susanna in the future is that they maybe could do the right thing and and do some investigating into this school and what was going on. Jasmine also talked about the Gust and Susanna characters in another interview as being these two people who are so nice. It's like really annoying. (laughs) They're just like aggressively good and annoying people. It is annoying. I'm like, fuck you, Suzanne, and your homemade apple crisp. But then I'm like, wait a minute, I really like homemade apple crisp. That actually seems like a very sweet thing to do for somebody. But I'm also like, I, I hate you all. It is funny how she's elicited that emotion from there. When I was talking, when I was thinking about the pictures, I was thinking of the picture of her and Harriet at the last visit, um, which I felt like was the most like messed up part of that visit. It's like, let's have this emotionally wrenching moment of mother and daughter saying goodbye for probably 16 years. I also will never forget that they said, Most kids want their moms. Most kids try to find their moms at 18. If that's not telling you that you're doing something wrong, but what? And then they're like, actually, let's take some family shots so that they can remember this. And so tucking those both in, I thought one of them was maybe to remind Harriet of where she'd come from. The other was to raise suspicions about what she had gone through. I would like to say as a monumental thing here, this is one of the very few books when I like an open ending. Longtime listeners will know that I do not like an open ending. Um, but I loved it in Detransition Baby and I loved it here because I feel like both of these books ended on a note where you can find the ending that you want and I could find some hope in how this story maybe ended and on a, a note that ends, I think, in at least a little bit of happiness for Frida. Are you flipping kidding me? <laughs> Why? You didn't like it? Where do you find hope in this ending? I don't think there's a lot of hope for this society, but I feel like in my head, I can imagine Frida and Harriet getting away with it. I can, because it doesn't tell me that she gets caught. I can imagine them driving away and maybe having a couple of years or like maybe not, maybe going to Mexico. I can like imagine whatever ending I want. Do I think that's realistically going to happen? No, but you can't tell me because you don't know either. But I don't think that would actually make Harriet happy either. She's very like panicked and freaked out and obviously has such a bond to Susanna and to Gus and to her you know, new baby brother. I think this is a pretty positively bad ending. Like this is bad for everyone. Yeah, this is the type book of is ending... bad for everyone. <laughs> True. But this is the type of ending that I like. This is like a pure tragedy. Everything bad that we thought was happening has happened. And it's sort of like the curtains close in this last scene with Harriet and Frida. And we all are just crying. And it's like, now think about yourselves. <laughs> okay. Um, and now that you made me. I love books like that. Oh, my God. Now that you've made me just think about it. Fine. <laughs> Can I say that I liked the ending because it was. I'm going to compare it to something else besides the transition baby. I'm going to compare it to Hades Town, the play. Because it is a straight tragedy. And I was shocked by the ending. And also just like so emotionally moved by the love that people have. Even though it didn't work out. Same thing here. Like, I'm moved by the love that Frida has for her daughter and for the hope she has that someday when she's 55, Harriet will care about her or want to find her. And I think that there's a lot to be said for the love between a mother and a child. And so maybe I just feel at peace with that. And, like, the whole situation is bad for everybody involved any way you look at it. I was kind of hoping she would go back and also spring Emmanuel out of the school. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Or I was thinking, like, maybe there's some weird world in where she, in which she thinks she took Harriet, but she actually took Emmanuel. You're really, uh, yeah. I really got into the, like, la- layers here. Also, I'd like to say, Will, again, being an absolute idiot, is now complicit <laughs> in kidnapping. And so whatever happens to Frida, Will is also going to face, like, criminal charges. Yeah, You can't well, be an accomplice to a oh. kidnapping. Well, <laughs> you're kind of a dumbass. I love and it's that all in text messages. Like, yes. Well, all he texted her was yes. Useless. 
But but then she said she was coming over. Like, oh well, yeah. And then they argued like vocal. Like I just feel like oh no no no, no. Will's so totally screwed. He's blinded by love. He loves Frida, and he's just like this little puppy who just is like, okay, sure, because I love you and I think you're smart. I'll just do whatever you want. Oh, okay. Now that we've kind of dissected this ending, what is your overall rating for this book? What did you think about it? I really liked this book. I feel a little bit resistant to it, if I'm being honest, because of the number of like adoptions and foster moms in my network and in my family and in my partner's family. But I think that is what happened. It reminds me very much of like when people say stuff about like white privilege and I have like a reaction to it that's like, well, not me. Well, not in this situation. And I'm like so unique and different. And like this has no implications for me. And it's like, okay, well, hold on. First of all, she didn't say you. Um, (laughs) And second of all, maybe like you should think about that. Like maybe we should dig into this. So there's been a big movement on TikTok in the past couple months questioning specifically like transracial adoptions and like international adoptions. We were taking a child from another country and bringing them here and paying a lot of money. And there's a really weird kind of system that we have for that. So Jasmine's asking us pretty difficult questions that I don't think I've really marinated on about like, yeah, does the government have a role in protecting kids in separating families in what cases should they in what cases shouldn't they and I think it's a question worth asking but it does make me uncomfortable totally agree I want to pick up a couple parts of this just for my own understanding so I think one thing I want to talk about later I'm putting a pin in is the government's role and who gets to take away kids and and how and when but I want to know what it is about adoption that this story made you think of specifically transracial adoption but in general like adoption why did that give you pause It's just like the entire idea. So like the pushback that has been happening on TikTok is like a lot of people who have been adopted and most of them have been adopted from non-white families into white families. And basically like the difficulty that they have and the dissonance that they experience growing up in a white family, but not being white, not being connected to their culture, not being connected to people that look like them in like a familiar context and how damaging they find that experience to be. And I think it, it's it's a type of family separation. And I think it's a good question. And oh, it's, it's totally to a good listen question. To. I think I got caught up in the semantics of transracial adoption and international adoption. In my mind, those are kind of two separate things. There's like transracial adoption, which I think is a whole discussion we need to be having, but also like international adoption to me is like, very problematic in a lot of ways. So they're, they're different. Both can be problematic, but personally, that's what I, to me in my head. And it can be a non-transracial international adoption and it can be a transracial and international adoption. So that's why I was like, wait a minute, hold on. There's too many different things here. There's adoption, transracial, international. And I was like, I need to like take a second. Um, No, I, I totally think there's something to be said about that, especially because we see Harriet and she's worried about that. She's worried about her family you know, now that Gus is with Susanna, the the next baby won't look like Harriet. And will she still feel that connection to her heritage? Um, And so I think that's valid. And also uh, just so many levels of heartbreak in this story. You know, what is the government's role? Because I think there are some of these stories you hear, these horrible stories about kids where you're like, absolutely, someone should step in. Absolutely, we have to protect these children. But there is also a line, and a lot of it does correlate with poverty as well. Um, And there's no room for that gray area and or you know maybe there is room for it but those are the questions she's asking where is there room and why is there room and how do we give room and what other options might there be and I like that there's not an answer at the end of this book but this is why I thought it was like detransition baby because there's not an answer to these big questions but you get the room to think about maybe what it could be what the answer could be and I think it's also the question that we've been asking over the past couple of years is like these systems are created by people they're maintained by people and people are fallible and biased and those biases get baked into the systems that people build 100 percent. this reminds me today at work we were talking about building a medication assisted treatment program so helping people 
towards recovery with opioids or alcohol, et cetera, with medications like Suboxone, et cetera. And we're having this discussion and I'm grateful to work at a place that has these discussions about it. Like we want to create someplace that's safe, right? We don't want somebody to take a medication that puts them in an unsafe position. We don't want them abusing the medication. We want to make sure that they're okay. We want to make sure their mental health is being addressed. But, and the debate was basically, do we do a mandatory mental health screening? Okay. Yes. On one hand, great. We should do a mandatory mental health screen, not to see if they get it or not, but to make sure that they're in the right services. But if you put that barrier in place, you create a barrier for a community that traditionally has a ton of them, which then can they access the care that they need? And so you're these, it's no longer required. So we have to make the decision, but we're just humans making these decisions for other humans trying to take care of people around you. And at least I think the key to it is questioning the systems, whether you change them all overnight, I don't know, but being able to have the conversations about why we do things and what the point of it is. And somebody just being able to bring up in that conversation or in these conversations about parents and children, why do we do that? And is it really worth it for what the unintended consequences could be? It also reminds me of some of the difficult societal challenges that we're dealing with where there's so many upstream causes and then there's these downstream effects. So it's like, you know, people are unhoused. They are unhoused for a number of different reasons and it can create a volatile environment. So it's like, yeah, you have to deal with the downstream consequence of a volatile environment while also addressing the upstream causes but the upstream causes are going to take a while to fix and then trickle down to the downstream effects. So it's like, yeah, you kids, if a child is in a traumatic environment, like we want to get them out of that traumatic environment. But ideally, we want to get the mom out of the traumatic environment or the dad out of the traumatic environment and help them as well. It's just such a complicated question. But I think I am really impressed at the way she attempted to tackle it and it really does not feel like any book I've read agreed so anyways overall I loved this book this is one of my favorite types of books it's putting me into a world I haven't been in it is exposing me to new ideas making me think making me feel I loved it five out of five best book I've read this year oh I read The Power this year, so that's hard for me, but <laughs> I will say five out of five. I loved it. It spurred a ton of good conversation. It made me feel all of the emotions. It was interesting. I loved it. I, my, okay, the last thing I want to talk about before we transition to Jasmine is lots of people on Goodreads were like, I just don't like Frida. Oh. I love Frida. I loved Frida. I didn't feel that okay. way. I do feel like she's not like an unlikable narrator, but she also isn't this like picture perfect person who's always nice with the perfect thoughts and the perfect ideas and the perfect decisions. And I think sometimes she's frustrating, but it made me just love her because I feel like she's just a human. She's a messy human like the rest of us, like who isn't perfect. We have two announcements. The first is that next week we finally get a special episode about my year of rest and relaxation. My favorite book. One of my favorite books. By Otessa Moshfeg. So that will be coming next week. The following week, we will start reading Honor, which is our next book club read. I just glanced through it, and I think we're going to be reading all of book one, which is the first 80 pages. I can't wait for both of these discussions. Uh, most urgently to debate and discuss the year of rest and relaxation with you. I'm Jasmine Chan, the author of The School for Good Mothers. Uh, my debut novel is about Frida Liu, a Chinese-American single mom who loses custody of her toddler daughter, Harriet, after having one very bad day. 
In order to get Harriet back, she has to spend a year at a government-run reform school where she's trained with other mothers from around the county. And the readers will follow her journey and the mother's journey um, in their quest to get their, their children back. I like to describe the book as a little bit like 1984, but for moms. So to me, this is a near future dystopian story about being wrongfully accused and trapped in an unfair system that seems like you can't escape it. It's also asking hard questions about the role of government and dictating what is a quote unquote good parent and what isn't. Um, In what ways do you think the government and society are already doing this? And do you think these lines are going to be further blurred as technology advances and we continue to accept increased surveillance from others and also by filming each other? Well, that is a great question to begin with, because there are kernels of real life in the story. And uh, one of the big inspirations for the book, besides my own intense anxiety and ambivalence about having a baby, which was the emotional inspiration for the book, was the New Yorker article by the journalist Rachel Aviv called Where Is Your Mother, which appeared, I think, in late 2013. So something about that story just planted a kernel of rage in my mind. I I didn't sit down and think, oh, I should begin a novel inspired by this this mother's story. But I think something about it just stayed with me. I just felt so angry on that mother's behalf. And what happened to her was so, just felt so unjust. So in in that real life story, it's about a mom who leaves her toddler son at home for a stretch of time. And after that day, never gets him back. And she eventually lost her parental rights and I think was completely barred from seeing him and the story was just impossibly tragic, but it, it provided a a lens into a world that I, I didn't know very much about. And I was really surprised and shocked to find that, um, the, the tragedy of family separation is happening all around us all the time and has been going on for decades in terms of uh, children being removed from their families for a host of reasons. Um, some of which are, uh, byproducts of poverty rather than actual child abuse or neglect. So that really got me started reading about the issue. And so there are many ways in which the government society is already imposing a certain set of standards on parents. Um, And I think what I hope my book does is lead readers to learn a little bit more about this issue and do other reading and um, sort of pursue more knowledge about this issue, because I think I was just really surprised that it's it really doesn't make the front page of the news very often, but yet seems to be one of the greatest tragedies to to have the government take your kids away. So I in terms of the technology, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're heading in that direction as a society, because it feels like if this kind of technology existed, it would probably be used by the military <laughs> or or used for more. Um, capitalistic purposes than fixing families. I mean, this is imagining a world where if we had the technology and resources, the government would decide to apply that to to families. I think the one way that the book ties into what's going on right now is like women's rights are really under attack. So it does feel like the government is taking great liberties to oppress women in every possible way. But I, I think in terms of Good Samaritans filming people that does exist, but in terms of cameras appearing in your home, I'm, I'm not sure that we're headed in that direction. I feel like that's such a good point about the the capitalistic society we live in. Like the government, in order to make this happen, had to invest a ton of money and resources into monitoring these moms and having them quit their jobs and go to this reform school instead of being, you know, quote unquote, productive members of society. I didn't think about that until now, but that does make me feel like it's less likely that that will happen. So, you know, I guess that's a bright spot. <laughs> um, I'll just jump in to say that in real life, if you do lose custody of your kids and you are monitored by CPS, you it is possible that you'll be sent to government-mandated parenting classes, and you'll undergo a series of supervised visits, and you will have to deal with the, the government in your life and making decisions for you. But I, I think the things that I read about was that the government doesn't make it easy for you to fulfill all those obligations, um, especially if you're working multiple jobs, especially if you can't take time off. So it it feels like um, a lot of times it's an impossible task for, for parents to jump through all the hoops. Yeah, really anyone in, caught up in any form of reform or criminal justice, it's like the 
overwhelming advice that I hear all the time is just like do everything you can to not get ensnared into this behemoth because it's really hard to get out of it. And yeah, it's quite, quite scary. I know the wrongfully accused uh, trope is something that gives a lot of people anxiety. And this book took it in a new direction to think about how it could impact mothers, how it is impacting mothers. I think it's a really interesting read to think about the wrongfully accused trope because it's it's one that I I actually didn't think about at all when I was writing because in in real life um moms are accused of abuse and neglect for all sorts of things. I know that there is a an article in the New York Times, I think it's called it was called The New Jane Crow. Um and that was about moms who did things ranging from walking downstairs to pick up something at the front door and their baby was upstairs sleeping and there happened to be a police uh, officer in their front yard and then they got caught that way doing something completely innocuous. And so I I would say that there's probably parents out there who are even more wrongfully accused than than Frida. I like that you're book also just poses these questions and makes people at least makes me want to read more about it and to learn more about this obviously crazy issue that's happening kind of behind the scenes and so hopefully it inspires others too to just do a little bit more of their own research and understanding about these issues yeah I also think one thing that you do really well and that Katie and I reflected on is that the role of surveillance is what keeps these women in this cycle of Uh, punishment because we have examples from our own experience being parented where like our parents would have gotten in trouble in this standard and pretty much everybody would get in trouble with the standards that the school holds over these women and it's like you we don't empathize with Frida initially but then over time or I would say what you did is Frida committed what I would consider like the perfect crime for our protagonist or the perfect instance because it's something that like we both felt we wouldn't do, or at least we're not mothers. So we, we uh, would hope that if we were in that situation, we would just call someone to help us. So you don't necessarily empathize with Frida in that way, but then you empathize with her so much for what she gets caught up into. And it's almost like the just the perfect motivation for the story because you can recognize where what she did was wrong, but it's not that wrong and it's not that bad. And like, you know, Harriet is okay and the crime and the punishment are clearly not not matched. But anyone under a type of like intense surveillance would get no mother would pass the test that this school is giving them. No, the punishment for sure. Yeah, it doesn't match the crime. I will say one of our followers is a mom of two little girls. And when she started reading this book, she was like, I am mad at Frida, but I just want to give her a hug and a day off. And I was like, yes, that is also how I feel about it in this beginning. And that was like during the first section when she first started reading it. Well, any any moms of young children reading, I just want to send them an extra thanks because it's it's not the most relaxing book, especially <laughs> for parents. I've been describing it as not very relaxing, but hopefully worthwhile. Yeah, I I would agree with that, but I'm not a mom, so I I my uh, my own anxieties were triggered. I can't imagine if I had kids. Um, But I was also wondering, the school has a myriad of unrealistic standards that these mothers have to meet. They have to be endlessly patient with their robot kids. They have to be completely sexless. They have to be totally devoted. And they have to anticipate any potential threats that might arise for their kids. Um, What demand in particular on mothers in the book bothers you the most, either in real life or one that you created in the school? I I love this question because it it gives me a chance to talk about the impossible standards that our society and culture places on moms. I took the idea of those impossible standards and, and made them more insane for the purposes of social satire. But in in real life, obviously, you're supposed to keep your child safe and you're supposed to keep an eye on them. But I, I took the idea of like paying attention to your child and made it impossible. Like you're supposed to pay attention every single moment, which no one can really do. And the, the idea that bothered me the most that, that I created, of course, was that you're supposed to have the correct maternal thoughts and feelings all the time. And that's something that I really struggle with in taking care of my daughter because, yes, I love her. I love spending time with her. 
sometimes I'm thinking about work. Sometimes I'm thinking about the laundry that needs to be done. Um, sometimes I get a little bored. I don't really want to watch My Little Pony. <laughs> and um, sometimes we're reading the book for the sixth time. And I, I think the idea that a mom would be punished for letting her thoughts stray or having any selfish feelings in her heart or wanting to keep part of part of her heart and mind private uh, feels especially scary to me. Along those lines, one really dark interpretation of the School for Good Mothers that I had is that maybe the school is not actually teaching them to be good mothers at all, but rather they're teaching the moms all the ways that they're failing at being a mom and ultimately teaching them to disassociate from their child, view it as a doll that they're going to ultimately part with. Are we supposed to trust the motives of the school and presumably the government who is sponsoring this organization? I'm going to begin with the second part of that question to say, no, you're not meant to trust the motives of the school or the government. Um, I think my book takes a pretty critical stance of government intervention on family life. I, I wanted the idea of what the school is teaching the moms to be playing on the idea of breaking them down via guilt and shame and then having to and being able to control them in that way like they've they've been taken to their lowest point and so out of desperation they're willing to go along with this crazy program i'm probably going to quote this line incorrectly but i think i wrote an entire paper on this when i was in college but there's a line from 1984 where i think winston hears the line like we're going to we're going to empty you out and fill you with ourselves and I, I think I wanted to play on on that idea because like because they're in an institution, because they're separated from their family, um, they're in a very vulnerable place. And so willing willing to go through this this impossible set of hoops to get their children back. So, no, I don't think you're supposed to trust the government. And I'm not sure we're supposed to trust the government in, in real life either. In general. <laughs> but um, have you heard that uh, interpretation that the school's actually teaching them to say goodbye to their kids? Because I we kept struggling with why the school has them choosing the doll over their own child and then why the school has them developing these maternal feelings for this doll that they're going to have to say goodbye to ultimately. Well, I really love that readers are very, very attached to Emmanuel. Um, so I, I t have taken that as a great compliment that everyone has told me that they've been very sad at the, the point where Frida and Emmanuel have to say goodbye. In real life, you'd be uh, a parent would be doing supervised visits with their own kid. But um, that didn't really fit what I the story that I wanted to tell because that is sort of um, that would involve like 85 visits of like supervised visits over two years and is, is just a different story. And so here I liked the idea that the dolls would serve as proxy children, but also be collecting data on the moms. So have like a scary power of them in that way. But I, I'm not sure that I intended it to be teaching them how to say goodbye. But the one thing that, that I think has shocked some people is that the, the final visit where, where Frida and um, wait, so your your readers have gotten to the ending, right? Yes, spoilers are allowed. Okay, spoilers are allowed. So the <laughs> the final visit in chap that begins chapter eighteen that actually does happen in real life, like that 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 idea of like thirty minutes to say goodbye before your rights are terminated that was taken um, from real life. That's crazy. I know that was, but like what. <laughs> Like I made up a lot of stuff, but that actually was was drawn drawn from reality, and people have been completely shocked to hear that. And it's probably the most painful chapter uh, to read when she's saying goodbye and thinking, "How do I hug you enough for the next sixteen years of your life?" Yeah. I mean, in real life, I think it's not always so draconian. I think it's not that their parents are always barred from contact. It's not that grandparents are also always barred from contact. I think what's confusing about the way that Child Protective Services works in America, and I'm no expert, I'm just writing fiction. Um, from what I have read, it's part of the difficulty in assessing what's happening is that it differs from state to state. And so, and the, the laws continually evolve, and sometimes the pendulum swings toward family reunification, um, sometimes it swings toward um, being extra cautious. Yeah, I, I also, like, we're, I know the book was written or the idea has been with you for a while and it was written in a time before we had 
family separation as a result of immigration, which I think is another level of uh, pain that's going on. My I have a friend who works for the ACLU and is trying to get like financial compensation for families that had family separation under the Trump administration. And it's like, yeah, I just I can't, it's it, like those the book is scary enough, then let alone being in the most vulnerable position in your life and having your child separated from you for walking over an invisible line is just terrifying. <laughs> One thing that I've I've talked about with some people recently, especially with um the Trump administration family separation nightmare and what's happening in Texas now with uh, parents of, of transgender kids being punished for letting their kids exist and have health care and being support. They're being punished for being supportive parents, basically, um, is that I don't think any dystopian novel can capture the horror of real life or what real life has been like since 2016. I mean, I don't think any dystopian novel could get away with saying we're putting kids in cages or we're going to punish transgender parents for letting their kids see the doctor. And really, I, I don't think fiction can capture that because if you if you turn that in, someone say, oh, this is too over the top. I don't believe it. It's it's too horrifying. So I don't think really anything that a writer could make up can capture the cruelty of, of life right now. I agree. I think that in the book too, there are so many of these things that maybe aren't even beneficial for the kids or isn't truly in the best interest of the families, or the moms or the kids that are happening. It's the parallel there is terrifying and also easy to see. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about related to our expectations of mothers is that the school seems to hold all these mothers to the same cultural, white, religious standards. How did you want us to think about this in relation to the intersection of race, class, and motherhood in our current world? Well, I wanted the the universal standard to be pretty impossible to meet and kind of insane for the purposes of shedding light on how problematic it is to have universal standards for parenting at all and to question who's making and implementing those standards um, because so much of parenting and family life is affected by race and class and culture. I mean, certainly growing up in a Chinese family it's just a different model. I mean, I grew up with, I, at one point, I think my dad's mom, my mom's parents, and my aunt were all living with us. And that's just typical of an immigrant family where you, you band together to survive in a new country and get established in a, in a new country. And I mean, that way of nuclear family life, that's not really the nuclear family at all, but like encompasses um your aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins, um, that really set me apart from a lot of the the kids that I went to school with and required a, a fair amount of explaining. But I mean, it's parenting is just so personal. And so I wanted to to call into question whether it's it's actually even possible or right to to judge another family and and to do so in an unbiased way. Yeah, it's is it's funny because it's related to a lot of my academic research, which is about how like when we think we're making these objective judgments of others, we're actually incredibly biased by our own perspective, what we would do in that situation, what we think is normal. And that's all tied to our upbringing, which is how we kind of reproduce these inequalities over and over again if we don't pay attention to them. I just have one example for you. So um, when we sleep trained our daughter, who is now five, we did the cry it out method. If you would were to Google cry it out on and like a mom blog or something, you would read like the craziest stories and say like, this is the cruelest thing you could do to your children. Like, how dare you let your kid cry for an hour? Like, this is inhumane. I mean, pretty much any decision you make as a parent will have a lot of detracting opinions and people saying that it's wrong. I can't even imagine being a mom in today's, I mean, I will imagine at some point in my life, but like, <laughs> I can't imagine being a mom in today's social media world where every single thing you do is questioned and is wrong. It's like, if you do the cry it out method, then right, you're leaving your child. It's inhumane. Okay. But if you pick them up all the time, then you're coddling them. If you don't let them, like, there's just, there's no right answer. And that's why it has to be, we have to trust moms still to make the best decisions for their families, for their children, because they do know what's best. And I mean, yeah, I can't even imagine going against all of the mom shaming that I feel like a lot of times probably comes from other moms also, which is even harder. 
Yes, I can report it definitely comes from other moms, <laughs> including you, yes. <laughs> including like politically progressive, really well-educated feminist moms who would never want to be considered to be shaming or judging another woman. It's it's just in the air. It's very hard to avoid. Yeah, I I was at a talk by Esther Perel and a Brooklyn couple was there and she was talking about how like, oh, you know, we've fallen into these gendered roles myself and my partner with this baby that like we said we would never do and Esther was like are you shocked like (laughs) you seem surprised I don't know why you're surprised of course you did like we have really strong scripts and people have really strong opinions but I feel like in the case of moms people feel entitled to share their opinions and that like it's just in a new way they feel like I I had this is I'm just like one of the people working at the school. I'm like, I had a dog, um, but <laughs> just the same. But when I had a dog, people would just come up to you and tell you how to like how you should train your dog. And you're just like, dude, you don't know me. This is so it was like bizarre to see how people are so quick to correct women and to step in and think that they know better. But that begins the minute you're pregnant. I mean, the minute someone hears that you're pregnant, the unsolicited advice begins. And also the comments about your body and the comments about how to handle like new motherhood. So I, as an example of how you just really can't win, I gained the correct amount of weight when I was pregnant. But as because of whatever genetically, I had a really small bump until about month seven. And so I really wasn't showing very much until the very end. And everyone commented on how I hadn't gained enough weight. My bump was too small. I wasn't eating enough. And I was just doing what they told me to do because I'm pre-diabetic. And everyone was like giving me all these instructions to like not gain too much weight. So I followed the instructions, but then everyone was uh, still worried. I feel like people think it comes in this good intentioned place to be like, oh, you should, you know, you eat more or eat like whatever it is. But like, if somebody wants your specific advice on that, I feel like they'll ask you (laughs) stop volunteering advice to these people who are going through these major life changes and trying to figure out what they believe, because it's just, I feel like so unhelpful and also just makes whatever decision you're making feel more incorrect or makes you second guess that what you shouldn't be doing. You should just be getting through the pregnancy, enjoying it, whatever. Stress, uh, low stress. Yeah. yeah, also don't stress about it. But also, did you yeah. eat today? <laughs> like, what's going also, on? Also, the minute you have one baby, people will start asking you when you're going to have another. I feel like people just, yeah, it is kind of crazy. I don't have any kids, but I will say people ask me a lot when I'm going to have them. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm not trying to have a kid, so it's fine. I will just tell you that I don't know. But if I was actively trying to have a kid and you were constantly like, asking I feel like people just don't think about it from any other perspective besides that might be a good intentioned question it could have really bad consequences like people just don't think about it well back to the plot so Katie and in uh towards the end of the book Tucker Frida's love interest says very optimistically we'll definitely get them back and basically as soon as he said that Katie and I both knew that Frida was not getting Harriet back there's just no way that that was going to come true did you always know that that's how the book was going to end or did that ending evolve for you as you were writing well I would say most parts of the book evolved as I was writing but I was working from a blueprint of sorts because when I began the book in 2014 and this is the the first time that this has ever happened in my writing life, I the book the idea really came to me fully formed. So Frida's very bad day came out of my one very good writing day when I was at a friend's house upstate and I was coming up with many many terrible short story ideas and I I happened to have a really good idea and that day's writing really formed the foundation of the book because it had Frida and Harriet's whole story the Gust and Susanna story, the women in pink lab coats, the dolls, the Tucker subplot. So I I knew the ending that I was writing toward pretty early on, but it took it took a very long time to to actually get to the final scene. But I I I know that the quickest way to elicit gasps in interviews is to explain that I wrote my whole draft longhand, which I can tell you is the most inefficient way to work. But until I got to that very last scene like that's when I started going back and and cutting because I'm an editor by trade and so I knew that once I started tinkering I would never get to the end so I needed to let myself get to that 
that final scene. But in terms of the the stuff that got got thrown out along the way, like I had a whole Frida and Tucker like 200 pages of their reunion after the school and it went on forever and it was just I think too sad and just spinning in the mud and not going anywhere so I ended up cutting him out from the the last part of the book that was one of the questions our followers had asked us to ask you also was is there any part of the book that you ultimately left on the cutting room floor or that you miss or wish was ultimately included so it sounds like that particular subplot you're kind of glad got cut but is there any that you're holding on to um for future books or any that you wish were included in this story? I wish I could tell you I was holding on to them for future books. Um, <laughs> I think, I think the, I mean, because the book has been optioned and the the dream is to develop it as an ongoing TV series. I think if there are any better ideas that got cut, I might uh, send an email to our, our screenwriter as, as some potential other directions. But I, I think I'm, I probably shed, so many hundreds of pages of of ideas along the way just because I'm a short story writer writing a novel for the first time so I was very much learning as I went and so I I'm someone who writes too much and then cuts um and so um I I do think maybe I will write about motherhood and mothers and daughters again but I mean I put so much of my my life and everything I wanted to say about motherhood in America into this book. So I I think I might have exhausted this topic a little bit. So we do find out in the end, what we do know about Tucker is that he does get reunited with his son, Silas. Um, What does the role of the father's school and Tucker's relationship with his son reveal about our different expectations of mothers and fathers? Well, I will say that the the idea of a father's school at all was in the very first day of drafting and the idea of a, a dance, which, um, and when I think about it now, I'm like, the dance doesn't make a ton of sense, but it, it was just a really important scene for me to write because I wanted the parents to to have fun and flirt in this very constructed, false way. I wanted the idea that there, there's fewer fathers, their lessons are easier, they get their weekly phone calls and don't have that dangled. It, it's not held over them as something that might be taken away to just reflect the way that our, our society and culture just expects something different of, of fathers and does applaud them often for just showing up. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see like a similar amount of think pieces and hand wringing about the role of fatherhood in mother li- in modern life. I mean, I I know that those pieces exist, but it's not the the same kind of um, under the microscope way that we we study motherhood and, and judge women. So I had the the father's mantra be different. I had their the whole way that they're treated be different because I I wanted them to to go through a program that was much more humane and allowed them to be individuals in a way that I think reflects the way that that things are going in real life. You had a draft of this book before becoming a mother yourself. Why did a story about motherhood and you've talked about the pieces that you read about it interest you prior to being a parent and then how did it evolve and change as you became a mother? I don't think I know either. At what point in writing this did you become a mother? Oh, well, I started the project in 2014 and then got pregnant in 2016 and had my daughter in early 2017. So probably midway through the writing, I was actually pregnant in real life and then had my baby and um, kind of was valiantly trying to write in 2017, but uh, spending a lot of time just not sleeping. So it it took a little while to get back to it. But the reason uh, the topic of motherhood interested me was I was in my mid-30s and it was time to make a decision and choose one path or the other with like, will my, my husband and I like pursue having a baby or will we just continue with our life as artists, which would be a different, great life. And it was a really hard decision. And the reason I, I'm talking about it now is because I think there's just so little room for ambivalence in our culture. And it really feels like you're supposed to know since childhood that you want to be a mom. And it's supposed to be this natural, easy decision when actually it's it's a hard decision, especially if you're living in New York, um, if you're both artists. My husband would talk about the melting of Greenland every time we we contemplated whether or not to have a baby, like, is there going to be any earth left for our child? I mean, this, we're still, I think we just talked about it last night. Like, what is, 
like the earth is on fire there's diminishing resources what is the world going to be like when she's 40 so i th- i think it's it's a pretty heavy decision and one that that i think i struggle i i put a lot of my anxieties and fears about motherhood into the book so in a way the book allowed me to survive a, a very confusing experience and i was also very nervous about how the how having a baby would impact my writing i didn't have a first book done like i'd been working toward this dream of a writing career my whole adult life um should i wait until a first book was done before having a baby and i i think as i was writing this book i realized i had no idea when i was going to finish it and the biological clock was ticking so it was time to just choose that path and hope that it would all work out so i wish i could go back and tell myself that things will be fine you'll have your daughter it's going to be great and the book will be published people will read it but it's you have to deal with just so much uncertainty with both motherhood and writing I love that. And there is not a lot of room for ambivalence. I like this, you know, that whole experience kind of talks about the space you need for it and the space that it's okay to take to think through those decisions that are supposed to come quote unquote naturally, but to actually make them. So it's very sweet. Yeah. It's funny. Also, Katie and I both are not moms, but we're in long-term relationships and we have read so many books on the podcast about mothers, mothers and daughters, <laughs> sisters, relationships with your mom, good relationships, bad relationships. I'm like, we're clearly also obsessing with this. Yeah, no, we're definitely well. doing it. We're having the ambivalence. We're just doing it. Yeah, in real time with all of our closest friends on a podcast. On a podcast. <laughs> I thought Sheila Hetty's uh, Sheila Hetty's novel Motherhood, I think, tackled ambivalence in a in a really satisfying way. I, I realize I didn't answer the second half of your question, which was how did the book evolve and change as you became a mother? So I'll, I'll just quickly say that I really think the the warmth and the love that exists in the book is is because I I rewrote the book so so intensely after having a baby because the idea of how much you're going to love your child is pretty abstract until you're actually experiencing it. And for me, it was much more possible to to capture those feelings in fiction once I had some experience in real life. But certainly there are writers who are not parents who are able to do it very well. I just wasn't one of those people. Can you all, I also heard you say on another podcast about how Harriet talked and how that <laughs> evolved when you had your own young child. How, oh, like, yeah. So in the early drafts, I did not understand that a toddler of her age does not speak in paragraphs. So I had Frida and Harriet having all these heart to hearts, like really, really long conversations. <laughs> and so that had to get um revised along the way but I also stole so much dialogue from my daughter and her friends for Harriet and Emmanuel and the other kids because I I mean that was one way in which real life fed the book like the the toddler and child dialogue feels very lifelike because it is basically swiped from some real life kids (laughs) she's gonna have some copyright claims in the in the future (laughs) I earned these royalties mom (laughs) No, her favorite part of the book is where, so she is mentioned in acknowledgments. And so every person she meets who she hears that someone has read my book, she'll say, did you see my name on the last page? Did you see my name at the end? Like, that's all she cares about. Listen, <laughs> that's so funny. I also love that you're like, I had them having full conversations. It's like when I see a kid and we saw this, I can't remember what was happening. We saw this kid the other day and I was like, how do you think that kid is? My husband was like, I don't know, two? And I was like, oh, I thought they were like seven. We were like, wait a minute. We need an expert. Can somebody come in? I had the moms bathing the dolls in sinks, like in the early drafts, because I didn't understand a toddler does not fit in a sink. <laughs> Semantics, you know? Um, okay, well, our last question is, what else are you reading right now? Or have you read anything recently that you would recommend? Um, can I give you a long list of books? Yes, we would love that. We'll put all the links in the show notes. And we'll also link the New Yorker article that you mentioned as well. Oh, that would be great. One, So one book for anyone interested in reading about the real life parallels um, for some of the issues in the novel is Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear by Kim Brooks. So that, that book is talking about um, this nightmarish experience with CPS and um, she's a novelist and journalist. So it's both memoir and reportage and I highly recommend it to everyone. 
one book that is oh, so I am again totally not answering your question, but um, one of the stories that inspired my book was also uh, the story collection Man v. Nature by Diane Cook and her story Moving On definitely inspired the world of the school. But here's my long list of what else I'm reading now. Um, partly in partly I'm reading a lot right now to prepare for some events um, and also um, some some books that are coming out soon. But I'm halfway through the novel Vladimir by Julia May Jonas which I think if you're in academia is going to be really, really interesting. And it's it's really a delicious book and it's very much about the female gaze. So I, I, I'm waiting to, be, I, I think there's some surprises in store, but um, the, first, the first half is certainly uh, very amazing and I'm excited to finish it. I'm also reading Motherhood So White, a memoir by Nefertiti Austin, which is about uh, being... Uh, a black single mom um, adopting a black son and, and sort of countering the the erasure of the narratives of women in color in in the space of writing about motherhood. And I'm also about to start reading The Rock Eaters, a story collection by Brenda Pinaldo and the novel Elsewhere by Alexis Shaitkin. And I'm going to catch up on uh, a book that was very big last year called uh, The Dangers of Smoking in Bed, a story collection by Mariana Enriquez. So that's that's my long list for your readers. I love it. We just talked about Vladimir, I think, on last week's episode or maybe yeah. the week before. I just read it. I thought it was really good, too. The first half, I was like, I'm fine if this is how the book goes the whole time. But I had that same sense. Like, I'm fine just reading about her perspective and this kind of character study. But um yeah, gets better. <laughs> I really liked it. It was the book that got me out of the slump. So I'm going to bring it to Erica to read next. You know, I have to say I too struggle with the reading slump just because there's a lot of uh, heaviness in the world right now. And it is it is hard to stop doom scrolling and read. So I'm, I'm grateful to have um, events and like be in conversation with people and like have blurb deadlines and things like that to to keep to keep me focused. Well, this was great. Um, before you go, I have to apologize because on the earlier episodes, we pronounce your name incorrectly. And I'm so sorry. That, my, my parents kind of spelled it wrong. So it, like they, they intended it to be Jasmine like the flower. And then I think right before turning in the birth certificate document, they picked the alternate spelling in the baby name book. So I really should have gotten it legally changed as like a young person but now it's too late because it's printed on books but it's it's supposed to be jasmine like the flower but it's just spelled wrong it makes an interesting icebreaker i mean it's a good as long as you're yeah we're so sorry we mispronounced it but it sounds like you've had that no conversation no, no just before so just be happy to be erica and katie like yeah. it's great to have it's great to have a straightforward easy to pronounce name how boring though <laughs> Um, also so exciting about the, um, television show. So we will oh my definitely gosh, yeah. tune in. I can already like imagine all of it. I can't wait. I did well, we're, we're still in the, we're still in the early stages. So, um, so every, everyone, uh, feel free to send good vibes. I imagined it in my head when I was reading this about like an orange, like an orange is the new black vibe to it. So I feel like you could definitely have that kind of storyline that goes on and you can develop all the sub characters plots as well. Seems like really good potential for a series I would watch. Yeah. Oh, Yay. Roxanne. <laughs> I know. Oh, but thank you so much for coming. It was so nice to meet you and get to chat with you today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm thank you for doing what you do and inviting me to participate. I'm, I'm so glad to talk to your readers. Okay, I finished three books this weekend, including School for Good Mothers, and two more. So I'm back in the groove. I'm back on track. I know. Wow. Okay, hit us with them. First, I read The Soulmate Equation by Christina Lauren. This is my second Christina Lauren book. So Christina Lauren is two best friends. I think I told you about it last week, and they write together. Um, and the first one I read of there was, was a holiday release, and I did not love it. This one, though, I love. This is like the epitome of rom-coms for me, like romantic books. It was like witty and funny. The characters are really smart and interesting. I loved the story at the end. I was also tearing up, not crying, but I was definitely tearing up and you're just 
there's like, you know, it follows the traditional trope. There's like the buildup of every rom-com, something happens, something cute. And then something happens that's bad. And then the characters work to resolve it. And I just, I love it. I love that trope. And I loved this book. I thought it was very sweet and interesting and fast paced. So highly recommend it. If you want an easy, happy, like cabin weekend read, it was perfect. Um, I also read my year of rest and relaxation. And I will not tell you too many of my thoughts because, um, number one, I can't find my phone. And number two, we're going to do a special episode on it and discuss it in more detail. I will say overall, I was expecting to hate it, which is rude. I know, but I, uh, in the beginning I did hate it. I think overall I was really impressed with her writing abilities, her writing style and like her brain, Otessa's brain to be able to write this book. I was like, this woman has incredible depth. Um, and I really enjoyed reading her writing. I think that this just is not the type of book for me. I think Otessa probably writes for a pretty specific audience. It's not me. Um, uh, but I understand the appeal of it. I think this book at the end was interesting. I wanted to keep reading it. I wanted to know what would happen. I feel like I probably could have cut out a hundred pages in the middle of this chick listing off the drugs she was taking and being really annoying. I feel like I got the point pretty quickly. Um, and the end it picks up, but, um, I think there was just, I could have done without a lot of the middle of it, but I was, I will say impressed with the ending. And I, I wrote down more thoughts throughout this book than I have of books in a long time. Good, bad, and indifferent. It definitely kept my attention. So, okay, I can't wait to talk about it more <laughs> next week. Did you think I was gonna hate it? Hate it? I was hoping you would love it. Oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, but I knew it wasn't like exactly your type of book. But I thought it was a book we can meet in the middle, and we probably will. I think, we'll I think we are going to meet in the middle. Yeah. I think we're going to meet because I think I got a lot out of it at the end, and it made me think a lot. I think it's just like there's two things I read about her writing a lot on Goodreads. Okay, no, sorry. no, we should save this. We should save okay, this. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay. Tune in next week. We're leaving you on that cliffhanger. Love it. Okay. That's all I read. And I'm starting um, on Earth. We were briefly gorgeous because I borrowed it from Levi at the cabin. So, <laughs> so I ran out of books and I'm reading that one next. That's a good one. It's short. It's a little bit of a blend between a story and the poetry because Ocean is a poet as well. In that way, it's a little strange, but I did really like it. But remember the book Open Water? Yes kind of similar to that where it's like poetry and a story similar and I yeah. loved open water so I have high hopes for this perfect okay great we'll You'll see. love it what did you read what are you reading I read oh. absolutely <gasps> oh my nothing. god I forgot <laughs> sorry it's a trigger do you want to tell Fine. us about that and why you didn't read any books yeah so I'm doing the artist's way which is a 12-week course for helping with creative output and uh, tapping into your creativity it's for sort of any types of creatives and each week you have like a new set of challenges a new set of writing prompts and it involves this, the daily pages which is probably if you've heard of the artist way you've heard of daily pages it's like three pages of stream of consciousness writing that you do first thing in the morning I am not one to journal I've never stuck to journaling it's just not my thing so I've appreciated getting into that I also was cracking up because Ali Powell on Instagram, who's like a Columbus influencer, she has a newsletter. Highly recommend signing up for that. I can put the link to her Instagram bio in our show notes. She's also doing the artist's way. And she talked about her morning pages and how like they're not very deep. And all I think when I'm writing is like, do other people have these deep thoughts? Because all of my thoughts are like, I'm so tired. This is really boring. I can't wait for this to be over. Anyways, yesterday we did this and da 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 da. And you just like, kind of are just going as you think but no one told me and I'm really upset no one told me that one of the weeks she tells you you are not allowed to read for the entire week and she was like everyone is mad at me when I give them this challenge I have to like prepare myself in my workshops for how mean people are going to be when I tell them this and I was furious you were really mad I was so upset <laughs> I'm still upset <laughs> I hated not reading this week but the idea is like to sort of like disconnect from other people's voices to try and tap into your own voice. Do I think that happened over this week? No, 
But do I appreciate reading more than ever? Absolutely. I cannot. I was just going to say, don't you think it helped you appreciate like how grateful you are for books and the unending possibility you have to read every book you'd ever want because you can. You have the library and a Kindle and you know what I mean? Like you have the world is your oyster, baby. My phone died at one point while I was at home. Like it just wasn't charged. And I literally was like, what am I supposed to do now? Stare at the wall? <laughs> I opened Dan's Kindle and I read the page that was open on his Kindle. I was like, this doesn't Erica. count. <laughs> oh my God. I do have a question though. Are you allowed to consume? Like, do you feel like your social media intake went up? Definitely my social media intake went up and I was like listening to more podcasts. Right. Yeah. I mean, I like, I didn't so, like, really are you truly taking away other people's thoughts. No, not that I'm not here I'm just, for like, this. Consuming I just worse like, thoughts. Wait, yeah. like worse thoughts. Like I feel like if I, my social media, when I stop reading and my social media intake goes up, I think I'm getting dumber. <laughs> like it's not that I'm listening to my own voice. I feel like maybe in the day when you wouldn't have had other ways and you would have just been just talking to people and thinking, Maybe, but now I feel like maybe that void is filled with like other dumber people than Otessa. <laughs> right. The artist's way is kind of old. So I think it might have been different when she was originally writing it. But I do think it's something Shonora mentioned. And I think Anna North also is that like when they're really in the thick of writing, they try not to read or not to read books that are similar to sort of like keep their like keep what their keep their creative output sort of like unique to themselves and not like have other influences I do think like I have the goal of writing a book one day and when I read other books I just get like man I would never be able to come up with something like that and you're like well that's because you're judging someone's like output like six years later like Jasmine started this book so long ago and it's like yeah you're reading the finished product of course you couldn't write that because she didn't write a finished product. She wrote like a messy draft and spent years making it better. Yeah, I agree. I think think if you were in the thick of it, I think if you were in the thick of it, I could understand not reading similar books because I think you could become self-conscious or questioning your plot or questioning what you were doing. But I know that you want to write a book someday, but I wouldn't say maybe, I don't know. I don't think that you're in the thick of it right now. So if you're not in the thick of it, I feel like you're just like just not reading. And I just feel like I'm so sad. But I get I appreciate your commitment to the journey, though. You don't necessarily appreciate things that are like habitually part of your life unless you take them away. So I think you like you really appreciate caffeine if you ever have to not drink caffeine. You're like, wow, I love caffeine, actually. That's how I feel about books. I love books. We're so glad to be back around here. I'm still I'm going to try I need to finish girlhood because it's overdue at the library I'm sorry if you're listening and you have it requested because I'm not done with it and I'm not going to return it until I'm done and then I have uh this book called there's no such thing as an easy job that's my next read I'm so excited I'm really excited to give you Vladimir uh after hearing Jasmine's review also the interpretation of it being I yes I just can't wait for you to read it um to hear your thoughts on it it wasn't like my top book of the year but I do feel like it was good and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on news in academia after I finish once on earth we were briefly gorgeous I'm gonna read this book called here comes the sun so we'll keep you updated okay well see you next week bye for my mother Atessa Moshveg <laughs> Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. Okay, talk, talk. No, we have to do announcements. Okay. Don't sing the song. Okay, tell me you love me without telling you me. Wow, tell me you love me without telling me you love me.